What's up, marketers, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Colony Podcast. I'm Liza from XGrowth to tell you that each episode we bring in B2B leaders to chat about the yeses and nos to achieving those everyday wins in the marketing world. Whether you're new to the B2B game, working at a leadership level, or even just showing some interest, we know you'll love the episode. So grab a drink, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shaheen Hoda with X-Growth, and today I'm talking to Kelly Harvey, Head of Marketing at IntelliHR, about how to leverage micro-changes to completely transform marketing output and hit your KPIs one after another. On that note, let's dive in. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So you brought this concept up and I was I was like I was completely hooked the first time that you mentioned it. Um, but before diving into micro changes and what do you mean by that and, and all that stuff. I also know that you passionately disapprove of going after silver bullets when it comes to marketing. What's your approach and mindset when it comes to company growth and, and marketing? I think I need to start with the explanation as to why I, I feel so passionately about silver bullets. I think every B2B marketer out there has had pressure on them in some role to deliver more leads. And Often, if there's not a really clear understanding from the exec team about marketing, then they just say, just just turn on the tap, just, just find the pool of leads and deliver them. And I really believe if you have the basics of your marketing in place, there is no silver bullet out there that's going to deliver this you know, magical pool of ideal customer leads. It, it just doesn't exist if you've already got the basics in place. Rather, improving the basics and and optimizing what you do have in place is what's going to add up over time and make the difference. And I think it's probably important to sort of establish a baseline when I'm I'm talking about the basics. If if you have a paid media strategy, so you know you, you might be using search, retargeting, social media, the, the paid channels that, that work for your your business, and you've got a website that's a customer can convert on. They can you know sign up for a free trial or a demo or or spin up a, a, a tenant of your software or, or buy the product. If you've got a, a functioning website, a paid media strategy and some some content marketing in play, you've got the basics. And, and searching for a channel that's going to totally transform your lead pool is, is just unrealistic. And I honestly believe that take, taking the time to optimize what you've got in place is a far stronger strategy because one, you've already got the data. You, you know what's working and you know where you need to double down. And two, there's a lot less risk. If if you find a new channel and you want to test it, I love it. I love a test and learn campaign. But putting all your eggs in one basket and hoping this one channel is going to help you suddenly hit all of your KPIs, it's a risk. It's a risk for marketers to take. So you're saying that, uh, you know, I'm drawing a blank. The um, uh, co- content syndication is not the answer to everything? It's not the answer to everything, <laughs> but I think, you, you know, you want to have a mix of things in play. That's what's going to really safeguard your strategy. Yeah, I think it's such a, such an important point. And I, and I feel like, you know, I, I, I brought up content syndication tongue-in-cheek, but 
you're right. I, I feel like it, it, content syndication came about as a silver bullet, just like you mentioned, where they're like, oh, we will deliver the leads that you want. You just pay for the lead. And everyone was very, I mean, I first time I heard about it, I was like, this is impossible. There's no way. This is fascinating. And uh, But yeah, and, and it kind of turned out that it was in a single silver bullet. I mean, I haven't spoken to anyone that says that they've got results from such a great promise. But it's it's so interesting that you you that that's what you're saying that you've got to diversify. Do you think that diversification there is a limit to it? Do you think one should diversify how how far do you diversify? You know, because there's also a point of being overstretched as well, right? Yeah, you're spot on. I think diversification that there's two two sides of the coin here. You certainly don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You don't want to depend solely on one channel like, say, Google search, for example, because if your competitors suddenly ramp up their spend and you can't compete, then you could be in real trouble if you suddenly your, your main source of leads is, is switched off. But at the same time, if you're spreading yourself across every single channel out there, unless you have an enormous marketing team and an enormous budget, you're not going to be doing them justice. I'm a big believer in doing a few things well and and getting the best results that you can from the channels that you know are working rather than trying to be on every channel out there using every different uh, marketing approach and tactic that you can. And it's so hard, right? It's so hard because, you know, you look at a new channel and you're like, oh, YouTube, that looks really fun if we get into it. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, you uh, before you know it, somebody's doing something on that front and then somebody else is doing something on TikTok and somebody oh. is like, you know, we do, got to do social selling on LinkedIn and we got to do ABM <laughs> and we got and then before you know it, it's uh, it's all shambles. And I get it. These new channels are alluring. They're fun. They're exciting. You want to try them out and see what happens. And I, I, I do need to stress I'm not opposed to trying new channels But when you do, I think it's really important to have some sort of matrix in place that helps you assess whether a new channel is for you. And for me, that's looking at the likely impact of the channel, the cost associated with running a test and learn campaign, whether my ideal customers are hanging out on that channel and how likely I am to be able to reach them and where that channel is in the funnel. Because for me, a big focus is on growth, unsurprisingly, but it's, it's getting those leads that are marketing qualified in the door and over to the sales team. So I want to be focusing on channels that are going to really help me do that rather than filling the top of the funnel with, you know, five, six, seven different social media platforms trying to get people into the top of the funnel. I'm more interested in the people who are already in the funnel and those who are a bit lower down in the funnel. Okay. Got it. Got it. Those are great points. Now, I want to shift our focus and talk about these micro changes that I touched on earlier. And I mean, you you touched on it as well. You, you talked about optimizing your existing channels and how important it is to focus on that. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse in terms of what, what do you mean by micro changes and what, what would some examples look like? Yeah, sure. So I think a really easy way to think about it is if you make a 1% change each day for 100 days, you've improved by 100%. And that would be a phenomenal result for us. I would be absolutely thrilled if all of our results were improved by 100% every 100 days. I, I can't imagine many would be upset with that sort of result. But the idea is looking at the really small tweaks and improvements that will compound and add up over time. And there's a really great example from a book, Atomic Habits, that I think highlights 
how this can play out in the sporting world, for example. So the British cycling team were renowned for poor performance. Um, In 2003, they had not won a single Tour de France in the last 100 years. I think they'd won maybe one medal in the Olympics in the last 100 years. They were not performing optimally, you could say. And it went so far as uh, a really uh, a really good bike manufacturer actually refused to provide bikes to the team because he thought it would do his his brand damage. So th- things were not looking great for the, the British cycling Definitely team not. in 2003. And they brought on a performance coach and his whole mindset was about making very small improvements to do with anything to do with riding a bike. So really breaking it down into small chunks and making a 1% improvement. And he knew that he would get a significant increase when he put them all together. So he started out by doing things that would seem quite obvious. So improving the seat to make it more comfortable, changing the clothes that they wore to help their muscle temperature, those, those sorts of things, things you'd expect for riding a bike. But then he started to think outside the box and look further afield. He did things like bring in a surgeon to teach the team how to correctly wash their hands so that they wouldn't get sick. He optimized each cyclist's sleeping condition, so ensured they had the right mattress and pillow to guarantee them a good night's sleep. And he started to do things like that that had previously been overlooked, but all of these very small things added up to um, to lead to some really big results. But it didn't happen overnight. Obviously, you know, these things really do take time to compound, but the results did come through. Uh, In 2008, they dominated the Olympics. They won, I think, 60% of the medals for cycling, and then they won five Tour de France's in the next six years. So these are pretty, pretty huge results, but it was over a fairly long period of time. They started this program in 2003, and it wasn't until the 2008 Olympic Games that they really, really sort of sort of started to see it pay off. So that's an example from the sporting world uh, that I think illustrates it, it pretty nicely. But bringing it back to B2B marketing, I, I've said it earlier, it's it's easier to start with what you've got and to make small improvements to the campaigns and channels that you already have in place. Because like I said, you've got the data to back up those decisions and there's a lot less risk, risk associated with it. So A few examples of things that we've done recently that are quite small but have really added up over time. A good example is we focused on selling the demo rather than the product. So when someone lands on our demo page, previously we were still highlighting all the amazing benefits of our product, um, you know, really trying to sell why they want to use our product. We tested the theory that perhaps, in fact, if someone's at our demo page, they're already sold on the product and the next barrier to them is the demo. Are they interested in the demo? So we started to sell the demo. We explained what would happen, the benefits they'd get from having a customized demo that identified their key company pain points and how we could help them overcome them. And we started to see a bigger uptake in people signing up for a demo. So that was one of the first little tests that we we ran. Another one that we've done recently that had a really, really significant result over time is we started to change up the calls to action on our website. So we were previously always trying to funnel people towards a demo. We wanted them talking to the sales team as soon as possible, or we'd funnel them into our database to nurture. So we'd we'd use a lead magnet or something and and we'd gate it to, to get them into our database. We wanted to test something totally different. We knew that when people saw our product in the demo, 
they got excited. It's a good looking product compared to a lot of our competitors. So how can we get that in front of people in a way that's really engaging and, and will help them to see the benefits for themselves? So what we did was we built a product tour. We did ours with HTML, but it's an interactive tour where someone can click through and experience the product for themselves. There's a ton of software out there that can help you do this as well if you don't have a you know, HTML coder. And we started to surface this as the CTA, experience the free product tour, you know, for yourself rather than trying to funnel them into a demo. And initially I was gating it because I wanted to collect people's emails and so that we could nurture them. What I quickly found was that people who were interacting with our product tour, they were 64% of the time likely to convert from an MQL to an SQL. So if someone came into our funnel as a marketing qualified lead and at some stage interacted with our product tour, there was a 64% chance that they would become a sales qualified lead, which is an awesome conversion rate. Those who didn't, they were down at 39%. So that that showed me straight away that I needed as many people to be seeing this product tour as possible. So I started to switch most of our calls to action over to the product tour. And I did it gradually. I didn't want to take a too much risk. So we tested a couple of landing pages first that had lowish conversion rates to make sure that we weren't going to impact the conversion rate to MQL. And we started to see that in fact, in some instances that was that was doubling out our conversion rate to MQL. So by making small tweaks to our calls to action and and changing up the way that we sent people through the the customer journey, we started to see some really big impacts. And there's heaps more work to be done there. We, we've really just started to scratch the surface about how we can use this more across our website. I think another really good example is setting expectations at every step of the customer journey. So our customers experience points of friction throughout the customer journey. And often it's things like when marketing might hand over a lead to sales or the point where we want a customer to sign up for a demo. And if we can set clear expectations along the way and and make small tweaks to that experience, then we're likely to see far, far higher conversion rates. And and so what we did was we basically mapped out the customer journey point, mapped out all of the points of friction, and then over a period of time ran a small series of tests to optimize those different those different points of friction and set really clear expectations and and measured the result. And we saw again an improvement in people converting at all of those points of friction i love that i love those examples those are those are great examples and and it kind of take leads me to the next question not everything can be measured right there's that challenge in the in the marketing and the sales world do you aim to measure everything when you're trying to do these changes or there are certain areas that you just accept that it's there that they're not possible for you to measure it's such a good question and I think it's a challenger that most B2B marketers would face because there's two there's two parts of this. I think the first part is you ideally do want to measure everything, but we know that we can't. We know that humans don't behave the way that we want them to. A good example of this is for us, often the person who's doing the research, the preliminary research, comparing different products, it's not the same person who then signs up and progresses through to the demo. So how can I track that change from person, you know, and, and attribute it back to the original source? It's really hard. So we, we will see, for example, when we increase our paid spend that our organic traffic 
goes up as well. We know that those two things are impacting each other. Our current marketing tech stack is great. It does help us, you know, measure a lot of things, but there's always going to be the odd inconsistency. And while we do strive for, you know, data to be as accurate and complete as possible, like I said, people just don't always behave the way that our <laughs> data tracking tools would like them to, which which does make it really hard to measure. I think the other part of the the challenge can be having too much data. And, you know, if you're not, if you or someone on your team isn't highly analytical and, you know, verging on a data scientist, it can be really hard to bring all that data together and 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 pick out the key things that really matter to you and your marketing program. So for us, I would always rather focus on ensuring we're measuring the right things rather than trying to measure every single thing that's out there. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely one one side of the story is you you're drowning in data and you just don't know what mm. to do and where to measure and then the other side is what do I do for the stuff that I can't measure? What do I do for, you know, when somebody l- hears about us on a podcast and, you know, <laughs> tells their colleague, you know, forwards the podcast and then they have a conversation internally or somebody um, uh, sees us on a social media platform that on, on an organic post. And yeah, those are those are very interesting, interesting challenges. And I think you, you, you talked about them quite nicely. What about timeline when you're running these experiments and, and these improvements? Because if I'm a marketer and I want to take this approach, right, I, I want to know how long it will take me to see results because I, I feel like sometimes you have to justify to the to the um to the management to the leadership team and sometimes they, they either the leadership team does not understand marketing in in depth or they have expectations for it to generate results faster how do you approach that and you know how long how long do you give yourself usually to 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 see results and and maybe how do you set expectations on that front yeah it's it's really challenging and when it comes to timelines, it does depend on the volumes of traffic and, and conversions that you're working with. I mean, for us, I would love to be doing A-B testing constantly on all of our different landing pages. But, you know, in the ANZ market specifically, there's only so many people out there and, and we just wouldn't have the volumes of traffic like some of the really big guys out there. We're not a we're not a Google or a Apple, our volumes of traffic for for A/B tests to be statistically significant, generally they need to run for you know three or four weeks. So I can't be testing you know five or six or seven different things at once. So there really is a challenge if you don't have enormous volumes of data to to be able to take this approach quickly. It's not a quick approach. It's it's something that does take time, unfortunately. And I think the way that you communicate this with a leadership team that perhaps don't have a deep understanding of marketing is to switch the conversation from the volume of MQLs or leads that you're generating and switch it to the metrics that are really going to help the business in the long term. So for us, that's things like our MQL to SQL conversion rate. There's no point me and my team generating a ton of marketing leads if they're never going to close. And I think most most marketers out there know that there's there's this this constant push pull for quality and quantity. And ideally we want both, but quality for us always has to come first. And I think that that is how you sell this sort of a concept into the leadership team. It's it's the idea of generating 
quality over the quantity. And with that comes the opportunity to generate more revenue. It does take time. And I think I've, I spoke about the importance of setting expectations for your customers during their, their journey. It's just as important to set those expectations for the leadership team. And I understand that can be really hard. But having these conversations up front and outlining the approach that you're planning on taking and the, the key metrics that you'll be measuring that are going to have the big long-term impact on the business, I think that's how you can bring people on the journey. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, I like the... Uh... The analogy that you talked about, the pull and push in the uh, mm. in the business requiring volume versus quality. Mm. How how have you, you know, what what what, are, what those conversations been like in the past when you've had a co- because I feel like one of the challenges is maybe there is someone junior in the marketing side and there there isn't someone super mature from a marketing perspective to kind of explain to the the leadership team in terms of what's happening and then the junior person digs a hole for themselves <laughs> by uh, by not knowing what what are some of the expectations that they have to set and then three months in mm-hmm. people are like what's going on where where are the results where <laughs> you know if, if it was someone seasoned they would explain hey this is going to take six months we're not going to see, or, or these are the results that we're going to see in, in, in three months. It's not, we're not going to see revenue, for example, um, mm. or we're not going to see SQLs in, in three months. That's going to come in month five, approximately. Have you been in that situation in the past? I, I've certainly in previous roles been in situations where the pressure's really on to deliver the volume of leads. And that that can be all the company cares about because there's a, a sales team and they're hungry and they need you to be feeding those leads through. It's really about having those conversations about what is going to drive value for the business long term. And it's not generating, you know, hundreds or thousands or, or whatever your metrics are of leads. That That's not going to help long term if they're not the right leads. So having a really clear understanding as a business of who your ideal customer is will help these conversations. Because if your ideal customer is, for example, uh, a, a retailer who is between the, you know, has about 20 to 100 headcount, they're online and they're offline, that's your ideal customer. There's no point generating 100 leads of retailers that are under a 20 headcount because that's just not going to help the business in the long term. So I think having a clear understanding of the ideal customer, and if someone is junior and they're not confident to be the one to say who that is or there's not a clearly defined ideal customer, then that's a conversation to bring up before you even start talking about this type of program because without clarity around that, it can be really, really hard to generate any results. So getting buy-in as to who the ideal customer is and ensuring that that's agreed upon across the business. So the sales team is on board, the exec team's on board, customer success or support, they're all on board. That helps to steer the conversation. That, that gives you, I guess, the ammo to be able to have the conversation that, hey, I'm going to generate these types of leads, but it's not going to happen overnight because there's not a, a magical tap I can just turn on that will send these leads through. Rather, what I'm going to do is a series of tests and and small micro improvements and tweaks to ensure that those are the people that are attracted to our website. Those are the people that our website messaging is talking to, and those are the people that are converting. I think that's really important. And I think the other thing that a junior B2B marketer can can do if they don't have that sort of senior support and buy-in is think about product positioning and 
this is something else that that will set you apart from your competitors. I've worked in the past for a lot of what I call challenger companies. We're competing in the past against the big guys like MailChimp or Shopify. Those marketing teams have enormous budgets. They've got enormous amounts of resourcing. And and in those roles, I, I didn't. I had tiny teams and, you know, moderate, small by comparison budgets. So, you know, what can I do to really challenge these brands and set myself apart? The answer always comes back to product positioning and ensuring that you have some sort of framework to identify where your product fits in the market and what sets you apart from those competitors. And by by doing that and, and getting buy-in from the necessary stakeholders and validating it with your customers and your prospects. So actually either listening to sales calls or getting on the phone yourself to speak to prospects or customers to help really firm up your product positioning, that's also going to help you generate the right types of leads. And that's also going to really help you make strides against your competitors and, and hit your targets. But it's something that doesn't have to cost a lot of money because I think, especially if you're working for a smaller business, there's, again, that push-pull of, I've got this budget, how do I allocate it to ensure that I'm driving the most the most success and the most leads or sales or whatever it is as possible? It's about taking a step back and thinking about what you can do that's not going to cost you anything. And a lot of these small tweaks and improvements, they don't actually have to cost anything except your time. So, Figuring out things like your product positioning, having a really clear understanding of who your ideal customer is across the business, those are the things that you can then use to inform your program of works and to to sell the concept to the the senior leadership team and to get that company buy-in. I love that answer. I love it. I think that was such a great comprehensive answer, Kelly. Thanks for that. Kelly, I have a couple of rapid-fire questions I want to ask you. Great. But before we go in there, is there anything else on what we've been talking about that you think I didn't ask or you think it's important for us to cover uh, that we didn't touch on? I think what I love about the approach, there's a couple of things. It's that it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. You know, you're not you're not investing a ton of cash in a new channel and hoping it pays off or even if you've weighted up against your matrix, you know, there's still that element of is this really going to generate the ROI that I want? A lot of these changes are are free. You just need to take the time to to work through them and and prioritize where you want to start. I think that can be a bit of a challenge if if you're not used to taking this sort of approach. It can be sitting down and and mapping out all of the different areas that you can make these little one percent improvements. It's then determining where to start. So prioritizing them and knowing that you can't do everything at once is really important. And ensuring that the things that you do pick to start with are the ones that are are achievable because you want to you want to hit the ground running when you start doing this sort of a, a marketing approach. So ensuring that they're achievable, ensuring that you're not trying to do too much at once, that can be the other thing. If you're running a series of tests all at the same time, it's kind of like how a, a bit of a scattergun approach. How are you going to know what was the actual thing that made the difference? So I know we've spoken about it previously, but doing this sort of approach does take time because you do want to be separating out each of the the tweaks and improvements that you're making so that you can guarantee that it's actually that that's, that's led to the result and not something else that's impacted it. Those are probably the last few things that I'd, I'd like to say about it. Great. No, those are, those are also some very solid and important points. Okay. Let's do some rapid fire questions. Okay. The first thing I want to ask you is what is one 
resource. It could be a book, a blog, podcast, a talk, whatever it is that had a profound or, or, or fundamentally changed the way you work or live. Oh, that's a really good question. The way that I live from a life perspective, the book Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Not sure if you've heard of it, but it's totally changed the way that I view people and the way that they interact with each other and really the world around me. It's had a huge impact on the way that I view the world. From a work perspective, I'd love to mention the book Obviously Awesome by April Dunford. That's a really great framework for anyone who's looking to dip their toe into the product positioning space. She she has a really practical framework that you can apply to your business to ensure that you're getting the most out of your product positioning. I love it. Two solid recommendations. Okay. <laughs> if you could give one piece of advice to B2B marketers, what would it be? Strive for those micro changes that will compound over time rather than chasing down the silver bullets. I love it. Get in the trenches, get your hands dirty, yeah. and uh, and start tweaking. Okay. Yeah. Third question. Who are some of the influencers that you follow in the sales and marketing space? I really like Joanna Weed. She's the creator of Copy Hackers. She does really great content on copywriting. And I think, again, if you're a marketer that doesn't have a lot of budget for different channels and big marketing campaigns, then copywriting is something you need to get right. So she's she's really great for sharing lots and lots of ideas around how to copyright for conversion. She is fantastic. We we def we have our subscription and ev- that's that's their introductory course is a mandatory training for everyone who's joining our company, our agency. So uh yeah I, I totally resonate with you. Last thing is, what is something that excites you about B2B today? That's such a good question. I have done B2B marketing for most of my career, and I have really seen it change. In the past, there was a little bit of a push that B2B marketing was a bit boring. We didn't get to do the really fun, big, exciting campaigns that I guess B2C really, really does get to do. But I think that's changing and I, I think more people out there are, are doing things that are creative and, and different and unique in the B2B space and it's really exciting to see that unfold and to see people pushing the limits and, and really taking experimentation to, to new levels and I feel really excited about that. I, I love watching what's happening in the industry and I love B2B so much. I, I would never leave B2B and it's nice to see that everyone's sort of going on that journey now and everyone's getting really excited about the potential. I love it. Yeah, it's very true. There's this is I think there's so much happening in B2B that it's new and so much of that B2C knowledge is coming into into B2B not to replace but but really to enhance. So that's um yeah. that's that's a great point. Kelly, this has been a great conversation. I mean, I I the, you dropped so many insights. I think the concept of micro changes is a super powerful concept that that you've you've brought up. And I think a lot of listeners are going to take a lot of notes and a lot of insights from this chat. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been really great to chat. Absolute pleasure. We just dropped the first in-depth study into account-based marketing in the region. We surveyed more than 50 senior APAC marketing practitioners to uncover ABM usage, motivations, benefits, and pain points across the Asia-Pacific region. We provide actionable insight, optimization techniques, 
and solutions to key pain points identified in the survey. The State of Account-Based Marketing APAC report is an invaluable guide for B2B marketers seeking to harness the power of ABM. Get your copy today at abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. That's abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. Or you can just hit the link in the podcast description to get your copy. Today's episode of Growth Colony was produced by Alexander Hipwell and Liza Maywald. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing by Liza Maywald and music arrangement by Alexander and Liza. Special thanks to Tina Wabe. We couldn't make this show without you. Growth Colony is hosted by Shaheen Hoda, Director of Growth at Xgrowth. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Do you think you'd be a great guest or just interested in a chat? Send through an email at podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's all for now. We'll catch you next week right here on Growth Colony.